welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 30th of March 2020 and this is episode 154. On today's podcast, I talk to Dan McLean about his book on rugby in the Great War, published by Pen and Sword. I spoke to Dan from his home in the West Country. Welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Uh, yes. So at the moment, I'm a housemaster at a boarding school in Somerset. Uh, but before this, until quite recently, I taught at rugby school in Warwickshire. Um, before then, before I was a teacher, I was a, a logistics officer in the Royal Navy. Um, having had quite a few members of my family in the past who were in the Navy too. But it was through rugby, actually, that I got interested in, in the Great War. So I helped to run the, the CCF there, the cadets. And a couple of years ago, I, we were coming up to the centenary, of course, at the end of the war. And so I, I asked to have a, a look through the school archives to see if I could find anything that would help me to, to decide how we could best commemorate that centenary. And actually, <clears throat> it was towards the end of that uh, rummage through the archives that I saw a suitcase on a shelf. And it looked a bit like a, a film prop, really. That's what, uh, what caught my attention. It was an old battered leather suitcase covered with labels for Florence and, and Paris. And so I, I opened it up and inside on the top was stacked lots of letters, lots of small, very Edwardian looking letters, all addressed to uh, the Reverend H.P. Stokes in Cambridge. And I, I opened a couple and... It turned out that they were written by a young second lieutenant from the Royal Marine Light Infantry to his father, who's the vicar of St Paul's in Cambridge, from the Western Front. And so I, I carried on looking through the suitcase and realised actually that it was essentially Louis's life in a box. There were all of his letters home from when he arrived as a schoolboy at rugby in 1911, all the way through his schooling and from when he joined the Royal Marines uh, in oh, the Christmas of 1915. As well as that, there were all of his school photos, his school reports, receipts and invoices for his school fees, even from, from Mr. Gilbert uh, of Gilbert's, uh, the company that still makes rugby equipment. For his and so that really got me interested in the war with my own military career. I've been interested in military history, but particularly in that period, with all three these folks. Dan, could you start by telling us about rugby school, its background and what it was like in 1914? Uh, yes. So the school was originally founded in 1567, and it was founded as a result of the will of a man called Lawrence Sheriff. Now, he was a spice merchant to Queen Elizabeth I. And when he died, he left money to establish a grammar school in, in the town of Rugby in Warwickshire. Uh, and also, he left some fields outside London, which were the, the rents from which were to help support the school. Now, those fields still belong to the school, uh, but they now form a rather large part of Bloomsbury in London. And so the, the rents there go towards supporting the life of the school, but also to funding quite a lot of, of scholarships as well. So the school carried on for its first couple of hundred years, like many other Tudor grammar schools with a couple of dozen boys, one or two members of staff. But it was in the early 19th century that it, it really came into its own. And that was as a result of the appointment of, of Thomas Arnold as headmaster. Now, he was headmaster uh, for over 20 years, and he introduced a lot of the elements of boarding schools we still know today. So, for example, boarding houses being run by academic members, members of staff, uh, such as me, rather than by old women from the town. The idea of prefects 
the prefects who, who run the houses and essentially run the schools, particularly in the evenings, although they have much less power now, of course. The idea of prefects representing the headmaster and his authority was introduced by Thomas Arnold. Now, by the time he, he died, he died in school. One, one morning he had a heart attack and he's buried under the chancel steps, so he's still there. By the time he died, the school was very much in the shape, actually, that we would have founded in 1914. So in 1914, there were about 570 boys in the school in 10 houses, so 50 to 60 in each house. It, lots of the day was very austere, uh, a lot of fagging, and so the younger boys having to, to serve, essentially, for the elder boys, and that included uh, cleaning their rooms, polishing their boots. Uh, there's a, a story from the 1870s of um, one boy beating his fag because he found him using his uh, cadet called bayonet as a toasting fork. Now, those two boys ended up being Lieutenant General Sir George Forestier Walker and Major General Sir Ernest Swinton. So they were uh, at school together. A lot of the school life was around, built around games, rugby football, of course, which had developed at the school in the early 19th century, uh, but also running and shooting. So there are lots of, of long-distance runs, uh, the most famous of which was, was the Crick, which started in the village of, of Crick in Northamptonshire, and it's still run today. It's been uh, run every year since 1838, so it's believed to be the oldest school cross country uh, in the world. And it's still run at 10 and a half miles. It's proper cross-country. As well as that, shooting uh, was a, a major sport in the school too. The Ashburton Shield, which is the, the main school uh, shooting competition in the UK, still in existence, was started in 1861 by Rugby, Eaton and Harry. In fact, Rugby uh, won the competition in uh, the first competition in 1861. They also won it various, various other times. Uh, right up to the, the First World War, when I've, I've read a letter about the shooting team coming back by train and then being met at the station and marched back up through the town by the, the cadet corps uh, and the band to be met by the headmaster at the school giving a, a speech and a half holiday. By 1914, very much the, the stereotypical English boarding school experience uh, that we know from literature and from films. You know, Tom Brown's school days, of course, based at rugby, to my Mr Chips, that sort of thing. We come to the outbreak of war in August 1914. What was the response of rugby's um, pupils and the alumni to the uh, declaration of war by Britain? Well, there were over a thousand old rugbyans serving by Christmas of 1914. So the, the, the ORs, as they're known, did uh, join up very quickly. The OTC, the Officer Training Corps in the school, one of the oldest cadets began as a movement in the UK in 1860, uh, with a, a letter sent to the Lord's Lieutenants by the Secretary of State for War, who was himself an old rugbyan, uh, and rugby was one of the first eight schools to respond. So the cadets had been a part of rugby life for over 50 years by that point, but the corps expanded hugely, very quickly, as you might expect. Uh, the army class, which was already a part of the school for all the boys who intended to join the army, expanded very, very quickly uh, and had to be replicated. And indeed, some of the older boys, some of the sixth formers, left the school early in order to join up. The school, or the, the war, was very apparent to the school very quickly. Um, a battalion of the King's Own Scottish Borders were, were billeted in the town, and I've read lots of comments and letters about the, the Scottish soldiers and how they, they settled in. But also the school sanatorium, uh, which had beds for up to 60 boys in wards, was given over to housing uh, Belgian refugees. So there were those who had experienced the war firsthand, living in the school, on the school site, not as part of the school, but very much that the boys were, were in touch with them. Uh, there's a, a story about a Belgian man who 
knocked on the, the door of schoolhouse one day and asked for directions to the local convent. And uh, there was only one boy in the house who, who spoke French, so he was sent for, and he took the boy to the convent. But the headmaster invited the man back for Sunday lunch, and the man turned up, and the boy was invited to Sunday lunch in the headmaster's house to translate. But the headmaster thought he'd have a go at welcoming uh, his his guest, and so as he was carving a leg of lamb, he said to the Belgian man, voulez-vous le mouton? And the man looked a little bit confused and then explained in very broken English that it was very kind, but he didn't have anywhere to keep sheep. Uh, so the, the wall was very quickly impressing itself upon the life of the school. Old rugbyans were joining up in large numbers, and as I say, more and more the boys themselves were leaving school earlier than they would have done in order to join up to you. So what was their motivation for enlisting? Looking through lots of, of memoirs and letters, uh, both from staff and from, from pupils, it seems like there's very little evidence of any active anti-German feeling, but of course it, it must have been there to a degree and, and probably developed as the war wore on. There's not really much political engagement amongst the, the, the boys of the school. They had their, their debates, etc., and they started the, the, the motion started to be about the war, but actually, it seems that for most of them, they joined up very much out of a sense of duty. 95% of them joined as officers. Some didn't. Uh, some out of uh, a sense of social equality. Harry Tawney, who went on to be a very prominent um, academic, joined up as a private and ended up as a very quickly as a sergeant in the, the Manchester Regiment. But most of them, with that sort of traditional Edwardian schoolboy sense of noblesse oblige, joined up as officers, a lot of them in... Scottish regiments, strangely, uh, a lot of them in the artillery, and as, as the war went on, uh, a lot of them as, as pilots as well. Those who joined up often came back to visit, and then that also uh, meant that the boys who were still at the school had more and more active encouragement to join up, either because they'd heard about those they, they had known and been friends with, who'd been killed and injured, or they heard of, of the outrages as, uh, that were reported back to them, uh, in probably quite a, a one-sided way, and lectures too. So G.K. Chesterton came to the school and, and gave a lecture about the war. It seems that they they all had this sense of, of duty, of, uh, yes, of adventure, of patriotism, in really quite a vague way, but still a very strongly felt way. To what extent do you think the school uh, shaped or made the, the pupils join up in a sort of a, an automaton way, it's sort of a Peter Parker type of argument that um, the public school ethos was so strong that it, it, it brainwashed these pupils, for want of a better word, into joining up? Do you think there's any truth to that? Hmm. I don't think the school did as such. I, I think, of course, there's an element of, of Edwardian society doing that, um, but not necessarily that the school pushed the boys to do so, uh, being slightly, <laughs> perhaps a, at the time, a slightly unpatriotic sentiment, but every boy that left, the school lost their fees. And so there, there was a, a financial hit to the school for every boy who was uh, who left the school in order to join. That's not to say that the school didn't help them when they wanted. So uh, the lots of the younger staff were called up as well, and four members of the teaching staff were killed in the war. But the officer training corps expanded very much to, to give a basic military training to the boys who wanted it, which quite quickly in, into the war was the vast majority of them. But the headmaster too and the housemasters uh, were actively helping boys, not pushing them into it, but helping them to consider where best they might be sent. So Louis Stokes, for example, whom I mentioned earlier, the Royal Marine Light Infantry was actually the headmaster's suggestion. He had no idea where he wanted to go. 
he thought he might go for the artillery. Very few rugbyans in the Royal Navy. Now, that's partially because officers joined the Royal Navy at a much younger age then. Uh, but I don't really think it's a case that the school actively pushed them into it any more than the, the society in which they, they were living expected of them anyway. Your book covers a number of individuals who were former pupils and served in the Great War. Of these stories, which ones stand out for you? Well, some of them are in the book because they were famous for what they did in the war. So, for example, uh, seven rugbyans have been awarded Victoria Crosses over the years, four of whom were from the Great War. And so they stand out people, some, un, some unexpected figures, people like uh, Geoffrey Cather, who was quite quiet, quite shy, was an assistant tea merchant in, in Surrey, liked a game of golf, and ended up being awarded the uh, Victoria Cross uh, on the Somme for his actions during which he was killed in bringing men from his battalion in the uh, Royal Irish Fusiliers back to the line when they were injured in no man's land on the second day of the Somme in 1916. Others stand out and are famous because of what they had done in the war, sorry, before the war. People like, as I say, Ronnie Poulton Palmer. He was one of three uh, England, rugby, England rugby players sorry, uh, from rugby school who were killed during the war, one of whom was in his 50s. He'd been a member of the England team in the mid-1880s, and uh, Rupert Ingalls. Actually, he was then, by the time he, the war started, he was rector of the little village of Frittenden in Kent, which is actually just a couple of miles from where I grew up. He felt that he couldn't encourage all the young men of the village to go off and fight if he didn't do his bit himself. So he only told his family, he joined up as a chaplain, and then sent a letter back to his parishioners explaining what he'd done and why he'd done it, and was then killed himself uh, as, as a chaplain. So others stand out really for more for reasons un unrelated to the actual conflict, but their wider involvement in the war. People like Sir Edward Goshen, who was another older old European, who was actually the British ambassador to Germany in 1914, and he was the one who went to see the German Chancellor to give him the ultimate, uh, sorry, the, the final ultimatum the night before the war began uh, in August of 1914. So really, Rugbyans were involved in every element of the war. The cabinet secretary was a, a rugbyan. The, uh, Ernest Swinton, the major general who invented the tank, was an old rugbyan. Lots and lots of general officers, uh, but actually, of course, a very large number of casualties because the vast majority of them were, were young officers. I think the, the, number, the proportion of old rugbyans killed in the war was just under twice the national average. And whose story do you think is the most tragic? I think perhaps it's a, it's a joint story of, of father and son, uh, Frederick Salou and his son, Frederick Salou. Uh, so the elder, uh, Frederick Courtney Salou, had been at rugby in the 1860s. And soon after he left, uh, left school, he went off to Africa and barely ever came back to the UK. He was a, a famous explorer, big game hunter, some would say early conservationist, actually, in, in some ways, and a friend of Cecil Rhodes uh, and the US president. And when the war started, he was determined to, to do his bit. And actually, he was more than 20 years over the upper limit uh, to, to serve. Somehow, he managed to get himself a commission. And he was commissioned into the 25th Battalion of the Royal Fusiliers, the Frontiersman's Battalion, in East Africa. And he was killed there and is buried in an isolated grave on what is now a game park named after him. Actually, his son, uh, Freddie Salou, Freddie F.H.B. Salou, was 
one of Louis Stokes' best friends in Schoolhouse. They were in the same year together. They joined the school together in 1911. Uh, he was a fighter pilot in the Royal Flying Corps, having originally joined the, the West Surreys. And he was killed fighting, uh, fighting over Ypres when he was flying an SE-5 and went into a steep dive onto one of the enemy aircraft and the wings collapsed, as I believe they had a tendency to do over a certain speed. But actually, they were both killed, and the son, Freddie, was killed exactly a year to the day after his father. How does rugby remember its fallen alumni after the war? Well, the, the commemoration started, actually, during the war. From the very moment that rugbyans started to be killed, uh, their names were read out in chapel. Actually, quite soon, that became really rather depressing thing never going to be cheerful of course but it was happening almost every other day and so because of the sheer numbers it was changed so that the names were no longer read out when the news of the casualties was received but instead there were terminally memorial services in the chapel to which families were uh, invited and in fact I had the, the invitation to Louis Stokes' mother uh, for the memorial service after he was killed. Now after the war uh, actually a, a committee had been set up during the war in order to um, raise money and to start to consider how these older beings who've been killed might be commemorated. Eventually they built a, uh, a, an extra chapel, the Memorial Chapel, which is linked to the main chapel by a, a short cloister, and everything in it was paid for by the families of those who've been killed, particularly the, the family of Henry Gare, who was uh, killed serving with the Dorsetshire Regiment. His father was the chairman of governors and an older being himself, they paid for the windows, other families paid for uh, the, the cross and the candlesticks and the big lead-bound Bible. Um, and actually one family paid for the lectern. Now it's not the lectern as in a small wooden lectern to put a book on, it's a huge octagonal thing inlaid with all sorts of woods. And on top of it is a statue about 12 inches tall of uh, a young officer. And it's based on the figure of uh, Wilfred Littleboy, who, whose family paid for the lectern, and uh, who was killed fighting with the Royal Warwickshire Regiment. Unfortunately, it's a resin copy, because the bronze original was stolen a few years ago. But in the lectern, there are drawers all the way around each of the eight sides, and inside are chain volumes of memorials to all 687 rugbyans who were killed. So each one has at least a double-page spread with a, a portrait photo and at least one page of a, of a biography. So it was very much at the forefront of the, the minds of the, the wider rugby community from halfway through the war that this was going to be something that would have to be commemorated forever. And that still happens today. So remember that Sunday is, is you, I think you, you don't really see the, the chapel ever any more packed than it is on Remembrance Sunday. And... It's, it's quite a sight, really, to see the, the CCF, as the ATC now is, the CCF colours uh, on their stand in the chancel with thousands of poppies falling silently from above, just like at the, uh, at the Albert Hall. And the names of all rugbyans killed in war that we know of are read out by the prefect of the levee as everyone is arriving for chapel. So that's all of those killed in the First World War, the Second World War, Korea, and since. And it takes over an hour. It's over a thousand names. Uh, and so the lives of those who lived in rugby 100, 110 years, 120, 130 years ago, but who died in the Great War, are still very much remembered by the school today.
How do those stories of, of those who fell during the Great War resonate with today's students? I think it can't fail to really, partially because so much of the, the, the context, the physical context in which they're living and working is the thing. The boarding houses with the same dining rooms and sitting on the same benches, the same pews in chapel, up the same stairs to the same classrooms. It, it's very easy to imagine life they might have <laughs> the food might have been i think quite a lot worse than it is now and and the, the relationships not nearly as i think as easy and as friendly necessarily as they are now but actually looking around you you look across new quad for example it was new in the 1870s and actually there is the doorway that we have all the team photos standing in front of the shooting team half of whom were killed uh, 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 you can see them standing in the corner. You can see the same boot scrape outside the door, the same lamp above the archway. It's still very much the same place architecturally. An example of that, I think, is uh, Dan Bradley. Now, Dan had grown up in the school because his father, Henry, was a housemaster. In fact, his father was a housemaster, having taken over when the previous housemaster died, and that previous housemaster was the father of Rupert Brooke. Um, but Dan was killed fighting with the Rifle Brigade outside Arras in 1917. And his father was a poet. His father and uncle were both published poets and were both rugby housemasters. And there was a little privately published volume of poems that Henry Bradby wrote about Dan in the year after he was killed. And it's all in their house. Uh, School Field is the house where we grew up as well. And he, when he wrote a poem about seeing a telegram boy standing on the step. Well, that's a front step and a front door that the people in Schoolfield know very well. When he spoke about uh, standing in the bay window of the drawing room and hearing the schoolhouse boys flooding out onto the close to play and realising that Dan's voice is, is no longer with them. You can still stand in that same bay window and hear the boys' house today. And he talks about seeing nurses pushing prams down Barby Road and realising that that's what happened to Dan, but he's no longer with them. Bobby Road is the road that still runs through the centre of the school. And I think apart from the, the size of the trees, it's pretty much identical. So it's, it's everywhere. In the house that I was, I was a deputy housemaster, we had a big silver cup called the, the Cutliffe Hind Cup for Military Efficiency. And it's still awarded uh, to one of the best cadets in CCF today. That was given by the parents and in, of, and in honour of Charles Cutliffe Hind who was a boy in Mitchell House, um, who was serving with the Irish Guards, and got a, a bullet through his thigh in, in the Somme in 1916, and was recovering, but then died of an infection in, in hospital in London a few weeks later. So everywhere you look, if you're looking for it, it's, it's just below the surface, actually. And it can't help but resonate with, with I think, both staff and people. And finally, Dan, where can people get your book from? Well, um, uh, they can get it from me um, at rugbyandsinthegreatwar.com. That's all, all one word. Or, of course, from, from the publisher, Pen and Sword, uh, and online, Amazon, etc. Um, and I do have a second book coming out as well at the end of this year, uh, which is about the Royal Marines on the Western Front. Dan, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much indeed. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman. 
and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>